going to be in Revelation 21 this morning. Stand for the reading of God's Word here? Great. Okay, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And it is a long reading, so if you can't stand, it's okay. Um, But we're going to read the whole chapter. Or I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, So this is Revelation 21. It's also on the next page in your bulletin if you'd like to look at it there. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed and on the East three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates, and 
the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me also pray for us. Father in heaven, we're grateful to meet together this morning. We're grateful to have the opportunity to hear your word. So Holy Spirit, would you now open our hearts to you, to the gospel? Would you wield the gospel of Jesus in our hearts this morning? And would you bind this church together in Jesus and in the cross? Would you help us, Lord, to follow the Lamb? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I grew up loving sports. I still love sports. Um, but I really loved sports when I was a kid. And just to give you a little glimpse of this, when I was in second grade, I got grounded from reading the sports page because I couldn't remember to bring my homework home. And that's what finally did it. That finally got, oh man, this is serious. I got to bring my homework home. No sports page for a week. Um, and I had these VHS tapes. See, I'm old enough to remember VHS tapes. I had these VHS tapes um, with different um, kind of sports clips. And one was called Fantastic Finales. And I, I would watch this tape of these great sports comebacks and finales from like the 80s. So if you are a sports fan, you will remember some of these where California and Stanford played and the band came on the field and before the game was over and then the California ran the, the kickoff back while the band was on the field and it was chaos. Or maybe you'll remember... Uh, Kirk Gibson for the Dodgers coming off the bench to hit a home run in the World Series. And anyway, there are all these finales. And we, or I should say at least I, watched just recently, about two Super Bowls ago, the greatest Super Bowl comeback in sports history is when the Atlanta Falcons beat the, or I'm sorry, oh, when the New England Patriots beat the Atlanta Falcons. I'm sorry if you're a Falcons fan and that just reopened a wound. Um, but the, it was the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. And the, just imagine this with me, okay? The, the Patriots won uh, 34 to 28 in overtime. But imagine you did not watch the game, but you had recorded it. Um, and you knew the final score, and then you went back to watch the game. You would watch it very differently than if you would have been watching it just in the present, and you were just caught up in the moment. And probably at some points, because of how the game went on, and the Falcons were up 28-3 to at one point, you might start to doubt yourself and think, did I actually see the right score? 
Because there's no way the Patriots can come back from this. Even when the Patriots score, they miss an extra point. And you're like, oh, this is terrible. How are they going to pull this off? But then you remember, no, I know the final score. I saw the parade in Boston. And I know everyone's talking about Tom Grady being the greatest quarterback. And so even though you may have had questions along the way, you knew the final score. And brothers and sisters... You might think that the score is 28 to 3 right now. There's not a chance you can win. But I want to remind you, and where we're going this morning is you know the final score. You may not know how it's all going to happen, how God's going to do these specifics in your life. But we can have confidence that if you are in Christ, you know the final score. That's where we're going this morning. So what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the what from Revelation 21. What's the scene? What's going on? The what. We're going to look at the who. And then finally, we're going to look at the so what. So first of all, the what. Well, the description here of heaven, it might surprise you at first. Because the picture here, especially in verses 1 through 4, is not a scene of us leaving the earth and going to heaven or escaping our bodies and going to heaven, but it's of heaven coming down to earth. Look at verse 2. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so the picture here is not, again, of us escaping the earth, but that everything this world was meant to be, everything God intended, is now coming to fruition in a new creation. And this is so just completely different from every other religion. And you heard I work with international students. And if you just think about the different religions throughout the world, they, they often have this similarity of us escaping the material world, escaping the prison of our bodies, escaping this material existence because it's evil and we need to get to this ethereal, spiritual place. And that's how many people, even many Christians, think about heaven. They think we die, we go to heaven, and that's the end. Now, that's part of the story. We do, our souls do go to be with the Lord when we die. And Paul tells us it's much better to be with the Lord there, but that's not the end. The end is of heaven coming down and this world, this creation being restored or renewed in some way. And this is actually just orthodox, historic Christianity. Listen to St. Augustine from the 5th century in his monumental work, The City of God. He said, it is by a transformation of the physical universe, not by its annihilation that this world will pass away. Look again at verse 5 where this comes through also, where God says, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new is very different than I am making all new things. I am making all things new is different than I am making all new things. So there's this restoration that's involved at the end. And it's not just us, it's the whole 
world. Another thing I want you to see in the what is this kind of weird phrase in verse 1 when it says, the sea was no more. Now, I don't think that literally means there will be no days of water in the new heavens and new earth, but the sea, and if you think about Revelation, is kind of this picture book. The sea represented this place of chaos in the ancient world. The sea was where the monsters were, where the bad things came from. That would th- What this is saying in Revelation 21 is everything that would threaten your peace and security will one day be no more. Think about it like this. I still think the sea is kind of a place of chaos. Have you ever been on the ocean? And I know we have nice lakes in Texas. I'm not taking anything away from a day at the lake, but I'm talking about the ocean where there's sea creatures that look like sand but actually eat you and octopuses with glowing tentacles. Have you ever been on the ocean and been so far away from the shore that you can't see it and gotten caught in a storm? There's this depth and massiveness to the ocean that's really unnerving at times. My, my wife and I uh, go with her side of the family to Florida every year. Uh, we take our kids, and it's really fun, and we go to the beach every year, and every, almost every year it feels like something happens to remind me of this, the danger of the ocean. And we were just there about two weeks ago, and at one point, her family's on the beach, the lifeguards come with megaphones and sirens saying, everybody get out now, there's a shark, okay? So it went from fun and sandcastles to everybody leave, get out of the water, there's a shark. And uh, my nephew said he saw the fin of the shark. Uh, Two years ago, we went on this little sailboat, and it it could hold like 25 people, so it's a decent-sized sailboat. And we didn't get so far away from the shore, but it just went from this fun little outing on a boat to all of a sudden the weather changed and the wind picked up and you could just feel the anxiety go up with everybody on board. Everyone's holding on a little tighter, a little more nervous, and it just, the weather changed like that. And we were terrified. And that's just how life is, right? Everything's fine. You're having fun. Things are serene. And then something happens so quickly and reminds you there's a storm here and throws you off. And at least for me, and maybe it's because I'm still, I'm still, I know, relatively young. I'm 33. Maybe this is just me, but what happens and what I hate the most about suffering is I know I'll be back. I know it's not the last time. I know there'll be another phone call I'm not expecting, another trip to the hospital I don't want, another friend whose marriage is on fire, or something is, oh, something is just right around the corner all the time to take it all away. And it's as, it's as if we experience all these little moments of death, or even soul-crushing, agonizing moments, and then we're just waiting for the final hour to come upon us ourselves. 
And it seems like death will not die. But brothers and sisters, that is not the Christian story. The story of the Bible tells us something different. It tells us that death actually has been put to death in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is said in Scripture to be the firstborn among the dead, to be the, the first fruits. And the first fruits, the first fruits were just the first uh, crops that were harvested in this agricultural society, the first crops that were just the anticipation of the fuller, richer harvest that was coming. And so Jesus, in his resurrection, it's just the beginning. So he's the first fruits. He's the firstborn among all creation, that creation itself. And we too, in Christ, will be raised from the dead. And the sea, the chaos, will be No more. Nothing will be able to threaten your peace or security, your joy or your happiness in this new creation. Look at verse 25 where it says, the gates are never closed. It's like saying the doors are just always unlocked because there's nothing that can harm you anymore. Instead of this world with death upon death, it's life upon life, an ever-increasing joy with no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. Another thing in this passage that I want you to see as part of the what is this image of the tabernacle or the temple. If you look at verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, if you have your Bible open, or maybe on your phone or something, you might have a tiny, tiny, tiny footnote by by where it says dwelling place in that verse. It's okay if you don't, but if you do, you'll see that what it's telling you in that tiny footnote is that word dwelling place is in the Greek, literally the word tabernacle that God will tabernacle with us. And the tabernacle, if you're not super familiar with the the story of the Bible, the tabernacle was this traveling temple, this tent that God dwelt with his people after he had rescued them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He traveled along with them and his presence was with them as they went. And then in John chapter 1, It tells us that Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt. It's the same word as here in Revelation 21, tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. And now here in Revelation 21, it's saying the next time God will tabernacle with us, it will be forever. And there is no, if you look at verses 22 and following, there is no temple or tabernacle in this new heavens and new earth because everything is tabernacle. Everything is sacred space. That's what all the jewels and the measurements, we don't have time to get into it all, but that's what it's telling us, is every space is sacred space in the presence of God in this new heavens and new earth. The greatest part about this place is that God is there in our midst, and we are with him forever. So that's the what. That's all the what that's happening. So what's then 
the who. Who is there? Who besides God? Who is, who is there? And we see that the nations are there at the end of the chapter. And in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7, we see that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be worshiping the Lord. And in verses 24 and 26, look at what it says. It says, In the city by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. You see, the great commission from Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations has now come to fruition and is a reality. It's been fulfilled. And something, something I want to highlight here in noticing the nations, in noticing people from every nation, it means then that the distinction and diversity of people is retained in some way in the new heavens and new earth. Isn't that interesting? That it glorifies God that all the nations are represented in a way that it's better than if they were just flattened out or eliminated. In a way, it's saying that God is not and will never be colorblind. That it brings glory to God that there's a mosaic of people from all nations worshiping God and bringing their glory into this city in some way. But notice also, when we see who is there, we see there will be people from everywhere, but not everyone will be there. We also see very clearly who is not there in the new heavens and new earth. Look at verse 27. It says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. And look back at verse 8. It says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. See, for some people, all those moments of death that we talked about earlier, the moments we experience along the way, that is just a foretaste of an eternal second death. Where there's death upon death and heartache upon heartache. Spoiler alert, it's hell. And this is as good as it gets for them, is the here and now. And you might think then, okay, well, surely I understand that the bad people don't get to go into the new heavens and new earth. They don't get to be a part of this new Jerusalem. So it must be the good people who get to go in. It must be the people who do the opposite of these things that are a part of this new city. But that's not what Revelation 21 says. Are there any kids in here? I know there are because my daughter's one of them. Kids, this is the part of the sermon where when your parents ask you, what did you learn or what was about? This part is for you, okay? Kids, the Bible does not teach us that bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that 
the bad people go to hell and the forgiven people, forgiven by Jesus, go to be with him. And those are the ones who get to participate in the new heavens and new earth. So what is God's requirement then in Revelation 21? What does he say it takes to get in to this new city? Look at verse 6. God's requirement is that you are thirsty. God's requirement is that you come penniless. Look, he says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This verse, and this is like a lot of revelation, this verse is like, it's almost like a clown car of Old Testament references. We just keep popping out and coming out. And one is Isaiah 55, where it says, we even sang some of this earlier, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. One pastor reminded me that Jesus on the cross, one of the things he said is, I thirst. And in John's gospel, it says, the soldiers then gave Jesus a sponge full of sour wine and held it up to him on a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch. Why would, what a strange detail to include, a hyssop branch. But a good Jew would know that a hyssop branch is part of the Passover. That with a hyssop branch is what they use to put the blood of the lamb on the door. And they would see that God's judgment would pass over his people and mark that the clean, spotless lamb had died in their place. And so when Jesus on the cross said, I thirst, he didn't then just taste some sour wine. He drank the full cup of the judgment and wrath of God so that he would pass over us, the liars, the unclean, And that we would then see Jesus Christ is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died for us in our place so that we, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, enter into this kingdom and are a part of this city. So you have to be thirsty. You have to be broke. You have to say, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's only those who are purchased by the blood of the Lamb, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who enter into this city without payment because Jesus has made the payment for us. So what's the so what? So what? What does that mean today? Well, I think a lot of times when we talk about heaven or new creation or whatever it is, we do have this idea that it's just all in the future. And I'll just, I'll tell you this little story of when I, I worked at the Galleria when I first moved to Dallas like 10 years ago. And I, I had a coworker who I was just trying to talk to him about the gospel and Jesus and eternal life the best I knew how. And as, after we were talking about it all, he said, man, that sounds really amazing. But I kind of want to enjoy my life now. 
And I think that's actually a very common perspective is all that stuff in the future sounds great, but I'd rather just enjoy things now. But I hope that you can see how this vision of what's to come, how what you believe about the end actually changes how you live today. In fact, did you know that how you live today is always controlled by what you believe about the future? Always. Whether you're a Christian or not, what you believe is coming shapes what you do in the present. Let me just give you this little illustration I heard from another pastor. He he says, imagine these two rooms, identical rooms. They're dark and dingy and disgusting and just horrible, a horrible room to be in. And you put a guy in each room and you give them the same job. And the job is you have to uh, split out rocks from the bag of beans. Anybody ever done that before? I have. Where you pick the, the rocks out of the beans, okay? They have to do that 10 hours a day, seven days a week for a year in that room. This guy, one guy gets told, at the end of, the, at the end of this year, you will get paid $20,000. The other guy is told, you will get paid at the end of this year $20 million. The first guy, he hates his life. He hates his job. He's complaining all the time. He's looking at his watch thinking, has it been 10 hours yet? It's been 10 minutes. Unbelievable. Splitting beans from rocks. The other guy, what is he doing? (laughs) This is the easiest $20 million I'm ever going to make. He doesn't care. He's just going along, splitting beans from rocks. What's different? Nothing is different about their circumstances. Nothing is different about their work or their conditions. It's what they believe is coming to them in the future that shapes how they live in the present. And so remember, Christian, if you're in Christ, you know the final score. And if you know the final score, it allows you to persevere and to hope in a reality that's coming, to know you have a peace that cannot be taken away from you, that the true story you are a part of is much bigger than your own personal life story. Listen to Augustine one more time from the City of God, where he says this, Can anyone deny that this future life is the supremely blessed life, or that the present life on earth however full it may be of the greatest possible blessings of soul and body and external circumstances, is in comparison most miserable? If anyone accepts the present life in such a spirit that he uses it with the end in view of that other future life and sets his heart with all his might and hopes with all his confidence, such a man may without absurdity be called happy even now. Though rather by future hope than present reality. Present reality without that hope is to be sure a false happiness. In fact, an utter misery. And see, it gets even more meaningful than that. Because this vision of what's to come, it doesn't just make us sit around and wait simply wishing or hoping that this day will finally get here. 
Here's what I mean. Not only does knowing the final score help you persevere and give you a living hope, it makes us earthly good today and helps us live deeply in the present because if that old adage, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good, that's kind of true if what we believe is we're just going to escape and float away one day. And I think my friend, my coworker at the Galleria has a decent point. If we're just going away to this other weird ethereal thing, what's the point of the present? But if we believe that Christianity isn't just that Jesus saves you and one day you go to heaven, but that he's going to make all things new and heaven and earth are going to come together one day, then this world matters. Our lives, our bodies matter, or if I may, matter matters to God. This is Romans 8, that creation itself is groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, that, that's looking forward to this renewal of all things, where the trees, as we read from the Psalms earlier, will clap their hands. And so we live today not just delaying the inevitable of death, but anticipating the inevitable of resurrection. And the good things done on earth in the here and now are reminders of that day God is taking us towards. Which also means we can truly lament and groan in protest of what's broken and wrong and not how things should be. And we know it's not how things always will be. Because if there's no resurrection of the body, then an illness in someone's body is just unfortunate. But if we know there will be a restoration of all things and the resurrection of our bodies, then every time a a surgery is successful, you're getting a foretaste of what it will be like one day to have a body that won't break, to have a body that's renewed and whole because of Christ. So we live today to fight things like injustice and illness and the evil and sin that's in our own lives and we do what we can as a testimony to how things will be one day and it tells us then that christ is lord of everything that everything like i said matters to god not just that jesus is your personal lord and savior but he's the lord of everything I'm even going to get in a quote from someone from the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, who said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And one of the deepest ways we anticipate the inevitable and we live as a part of the story now is how we think about missions. Those that's true, that Jesus Christ has purchased with his blood those from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, then that can give us confidence to interact with people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And we can draw near to them, to people who aren't like us and love them and tell them the good news of Jesus, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
you know, I already, I already talked a, a bit about our ministry with international students at UTD. But I didn't tell you that statistically, 75% of international students come and go without ever being welcomed into an American home while they're And we need to keep sending missionaries. Absolutely. We need to keep finding out and trusting the Lord with who it is that he's raising up for us to send out. But we also need to engage with the world that's in our backyard with people who literally have never heard of the gospel. UTD is 12 miles from here, 17 minutes away. And we can be we can be the welcoming face of Christ to these people and invite them into our lives and tell them the good news of Jesus because 75% won't have that happen. People ask me when I, with my work with international students, how many languages do you know? Or what overseas experience have you had? Thinking there's some kind of expertise you need. And my dad asked me recently, what like, makes you want to have people from all over the world in your home? You didn't learn that from us. You didn't learn that growing up. And what compels me is, listen, I'm one of the people who didn't know there were 10,000 international students at UTD. I'm one of the people who was not welcoming them. I've lived in Richardson six years and had no idea. I knew there was some international thing at UTD, but I didn't know that this was the case. And what compels me is not that I'm some kind of expert. It's this. It's that God is drawing the nations to himself for all eternity. I just want to be a part of it. If the story we are a part of leads to a unified humanity, then the church can have a foretaste of that now and witness to it now in the present. The church can demonstrate that the unity of humanity occurs in only one way. It's not through politics. Haha, <laughs> we know that. It's not through good education. It's not through religious pluralism where we all just agree to disagree. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. One of my professors said, if our churches can live out of this post-tribal narrative, it could be our best apologetic to the world. Think of all the ways we're divided, just in our country. Think about how everyone's just angry with each other. All the time. And imagine if what we said and what we lived by is that what holds us together is the cross and our identity individually and our identity together as the church. Our primary identity is that we belong to an international kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is is how I'll close. There's one more thing that's really, really, really important. Reading one theologian pointed this out to me, and it's really important because the things we've talked about today from Revelation 21 remind us of something when we fail, as we do so often. 
Because if we're honest, it seems like we can never quite get it right. Whether it means we keep making the same mistakes, keep sinning, or as soon as someone in our church is healed, comes out of the hospital, someone else goes in, or as soon as one country signs a a peace treaty, genocide pops up somewhere else, This passage in Revelation reminds us of something. It reminds us that the future does not depend on us, but on God. Look back at verse 2 one more time, where it says that this holy city comes down from God, prepared by God. And in verse 5, he says, I am making all things new. So we don't eventually do enough good things to create the kingdom, or we don't do enough good things to to make heaven and earth come together, but that's what actually is freeing, is God's not asking us to do that. He's the one who does it. He's asking us to testify to its coming, both in word and deed, not to create the kingdom, but point to it, that God is the one who is at work, and God is the one who will do it. It's not the works of our own hands that can do it. It's him. And one day the Lord's prayer will come to fruition. God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 